I pray that that's the uh, something that each of these children will be able to say one day with truth because God has changed their hearts. And I hope that if you have not been able to see spiritually, that God would grant you that sight as well. It's a great, that's a great uh, song there. Let's turn to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. cheating will be expelled from school. You're sitting in class and you look under the desk in front of you and you see that while you're about to take a test, you see that your classmate has left his study guide out in the open and that you can see all the answers that the test has right there at your feet. And no one knows except for you. Well, you use some of those answers and you finish the test and although you don't feel great about yourself, the pressure of getting a good grade is certainly off your shoulders because you had the answers. And as your day continues, you start to suppress the memory of what you did. You cheated on a test and you figure you cannot be caught. And then one of the people that you don't like in your class corners you and says, I know what you did during third hour of history test. You copied the answer from the study guide in front of you, and I'm going to report you to the principal. So now you have to make a choice. Will you wait and hope that nothing happens? Maybe he doesn't actually go and and tell the principal. And if you do wait, you risk being expelled from the school, or will you report your sin and plead for mercy? What about us? on a larger scale. What do we do since every one of our sins is an offense against the Almighty Creator? What do we do? Do we hope that our sin gets ignored? Do we kind of just try to suppress the idea of our sin and risk facing the judgment of God one day? Or, when we have our sin made known to us, do we acknowledge it before God and seek to have it removed? The people during the time of Ezra are faced with that very choice. They have to ask themselves and answer this question, what will we do with our sin? So let me begin reading here in chapter 9 of Ezra with verses 1-4. through We're going to cover the last two chapters here of Ezra, but I'm just going to read the first four verses of chapter 9 to begin this morning. This is the Word of God. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. 
Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. This is Ezra speaking here. He's a priest and a scribe. He's one who's concerned about the law and the words of God and obeying God. And he finds out about this sin that has taken place among the people of Israel. He discovers their sin. This passage is about the sin of Israel and the remedy they used to make themselves right before God. In order for us to understand these two chapters, the first question that we need to ask is, how was the sin of Israel discovered? Notice the first few words of verse 1. Now, when these things had been completed. This really summarizes what's happened in the previous few chapters. Remember in chapters 7 and 8, we saw that Ezra had been led by God to go from Babylon to Jerusalem about a 1,000-mile journey by foot. Apparently, Ezra had discovered that some or many of the Jews were not living according to the commands of God. And so he decided to lead a group of Jews back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And his goal, according to chapter 7, verse 10, was spiritual reformation. He wanted to see them changed so that they would be submitting to the Word of God. But he recognized that he couldn't expect spiritual reformation, spiritual change among the people if he first didn't see change in himself. And so, chapter 7, verse 10 says that he set out to study the Word of God, understand it, and then to practice it, to live it, and then thirdly, to teach it to the people. And so he gets permission from the Persian king, Artaxerxes, and he gathers up the adequate supplies as well as the several thousand people who go with him. And he takes a four-month trip from Babylon to Jerusalem carrying all this gold and, and uh, young people and animals and so on. And when they arrived, we saw at the end of chapter 8 that they counted all the money to make sure that the money had all arrived. We talked about it being in the, the, uh, the range of several million dollars, probably hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold that they were carrying with them. That's in our terms. And um, it was all there. And when they got there to Jerusalem, they made sacrifices to God at the temple. And now, in chapter 9, verse 1, it begins with, these, now, when these things had been completed. What he's talking about is not only their journey, but also what Ezra had set out to do. He set out to go to Jerusalem to actually teach them. Ezra had been teaching the people between the time that they arrived and the time that this sin is exposed. Apparently, the other thing that he did was set up judges and magistrates throughout the region to make sure that people understood the laws of God and that they were obeying it. According to chapter 7, verse 9, Ezra arrived in the fifth month of the year. And in here, in chapter 10, verse 9, we see that, that this takes place during the ninth month. So he's been there for four months. It took four months to get there. Then he was there another four months before the sin became exposed. And now we can understand what this phrase means in chapter 9, verse 1. Ezra had been teaching them the laws of God. He had been establishing leaders. And it's interesting to note that Ezra did not discover the sin on his own. He didn't go out on a search and say, all right, what's going on here? Let's find out what kind of sin is in the camp. Instead, it is the princes. Notice verse 1. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, Ezra, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. And he goes on to say, 
that they have actually intermarried with these people. And so, here's what's happening. Ezra arrives. He spends four months teaching, establishing leaders. And as they start to hear the Word of God being preached and taught, they see the sin for themselves. That's what God's Word does. It exposes our sin. It's like a light being shined on us. We, we Jesus said, love the darkness rather than light. We, we love it because our deeds are evil. And yet, God's Word shines the light of His truth on us and it exposes our sin. Has that ever happened to you? When you're hearing the Word of God, that God pointed out to you a sin by the preaching of His Word. Or as you were reading the Word of God for yourself, you recognized that you were a sinner. I certainly have had that happen. I have it happen regularly still. That's what happens with the people of Israel when Ezra teaches them the Scriptures. And so they come to Ezra and say, listen, we have sinned. We have some sin among our people. The nature of the sin is found at the end of verse 1. That they have, middle of verse 1 says that they have not separated themselves from the people according to their abominations. Verse 2, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. So, the problem was impure marriages. At the end of verse 1, it tells us what kind of marriages these were or with what kind of people. It wasn't Jews marrying Jews. It was Jews marrying Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and so on. So what makes these marriages impure? That's what we have to ask. If, if God sees this as a sin and God's going to ask them to deal with this, what makes these marriages impure? Is it because they married foreign women? In verse 1, Canaanites and all these other peoples. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 towards the front of your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's the fifth book of the Bible. And I'll show you why that this was such an abomination to God. This was not something like, oh, we didn't know, God, that you didn't want us to do this. God had made it clear to Israel in their history and had reminded them several times that He did not want them to marry these foreign women. That it was an abomination to God. It was something that He hated. Look at chapter 7. Verse 1, here Moses is speaking to the people of Israel prior to them inheriting the land of Canaan. And here's what he says to them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this promised land, where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you. So you're going into this land, and right now this land is occupied by all these foreigners, these people who don't love or, or have any concern for God's Word. Okay? When God clears the way for you, then He lists all these people. The end of verse 1 says, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, and you shall utterly destroy them. So here's the command. You don't let them stay around. You need to wipe out all the people. Because He's going to tell you why here in just a second. second part of verse 2 says, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? I mean, why, why is it so important to you, God, that we don't intermarry with these foreigners? Verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following Me to serve other gods. 
Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim. This is just an idol that they would have. And burn their graven images with fire. You see, God knew something about the people of Israel who were set apart as His people. He knew that if they allowed the foreign nations to remain, that the people would, verse 3, turn away from God to follow these false gods. Turn back to Ezra chapter 9. So why does God have a problem with with this intermarrying of Israel with these foreign nations? It's not a question of ethnicity or race as if God is is racist or something. Remember, Joseph, a man of God, married an Egyptian. Moses married a Midianite. Boaz married a Moabite. And there is no indication in the Scriptures that God had a problem with any of these marriages because these women, I believe, were either already following God or they were willing to denounce their worship in order to serve the true and living God. That's the point. The point is, here in Ezra 9, that God doesn't have a problem with interracial marriages. Rather, He has a problem with interreligious marriages. That is, the type of marriage that includes one person who claims to serve the true and living God and the other who serves a false god or a pantheon of gods. And the reason that God hates this so much is because He knows us. He knows that in general the unbeliever does not come to abandon his or her false god. But instead, the professing believer is the one who adopts the worship of the false god. It usually works that way. Perhaps you've seen that firsthand. You see, unfaithfulness to God is putting God alongside of one or more gods and living as if it's okay. That if we can set you up here, God, we'll serve you, but then also we'll have these other false gods. It's as if... We put God, the true and living God, up on a shelf where we serve all the gods. It's, it's okay. It may feel okay for us, but that is not okay with God. God demands exclusive worship. Exodus 20, God says in the very first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have what? No other gods before me. Besides me, there is no other God, so you can't serve anybody else. In Isaiah, God says, I will not give my glory to another. I'm not going to share glory with a false God. As if they actually exist. As if they have any power. And so the reason that this kind of marriage in Israel is so repulsive to God and should be to us is because it's like trying to mix the worship of the true God with the worship of false gods. One person trying to serve the true God, one person trying to serve false gods, and God is saying, I will accept no rivals. A mixed marriage religiously denies the glory that is due to God and gives glory to false gods who don't deserve it. And so these marriages that God hated had nothing to do with race. I'm going to come back to that here in just a second. We are all of one race. The human race. The reason that God hated these marriage marriages is because of the spouse's unbelief. The extent of their sin is seen in the second part of verse 2. It wasn't just 
the lay people or the common people. At the end of verse 2 it says, Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this faithfulness. And when their sins or when these lists of people are given to us here in chapter 10, we're not going to go through them, but, but it includes even the priests, that they were intermarrying with people who didn't serve the living and true God. So what do we do when we recognize that we have sinned against God? I'm not talking about a mixed marriage. Maybe that is the case for you. But, but what is it that we do when we have sinned against God? What is it that when we, what do we do when we recognize that we are not serving the one and only God? We are not ex- serving Him exclusively. I think for us it means that we must worship God. We need to deny the validity of other false gods. We need to denounce any means to come to God except through the one prescribed way. Jesus said it this way in John 14.6, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Me. You heard somebody say that there are many roads to God. You know, we can just coexist. We all, all roads lead to God. There is some truth to that, by the way, that all roads do lead to God. But not all roads lead to salvation in God. We will all come and stand before God one day. But those who rejected His Son on this earth will be rejected by Him. They will be judged. So all roads lead to God in that way, but not all roads lead to God in terms of salvation. We cannot come to God on the basis of what we have done. We can, cannot be accepted by God, God because we went to church a few times a year or we went to church every week of the year for several years. Our sin separates us from God. And it keeps us from having a relationship with Him because God is perfectly holy. And He cannot allow sin to come into His presence. The Bible describes Him as an all-consuming fire. And if we tried to come before Him with our little acts of righteousness over here while ignoring our acts of sin, we will be swallowed up under the wrath of God if we stand on the basis of our own works because God would actually be an unjust God if He overlooked our sin. If He just took our sin and swept it under the rug. God would be unjust. We would say, how could you do this, God? You're just being arbitrary. Choosing one over the other. You're you're, you're saying the the sins don't matter and I'm just going to ignore them. You see, our sins have to be paid for. The Bible teaches us either we pay for them by spending eternity under the wrath of God in hell, or they are paid for by Christ taking our place. That's what we just sang about. His robes for mine. We deserved God's wrath, but He received God's wrath in our place. That's what Jesus did. That's why His death is so important to us as Christians. And that's why we want you, if you're not a Christian today, we want you to become a Christian because it is the only way that you can come to God. You have to recognize that Jesus' death was enough. That He died on the, on the cross as an innocent man. And prior to His death, He suffered all the punishment of our sin. The full measure of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus for your sake and for mine. He died and He was buried in a tomb, but God proved that His sacrifice was worth 
was worthwhile, that it was worth paying for our sins, that it was acceptable. And the reason that and the way that God proved that his sacrifice was acceptable was by raising him from the dead. That's the resurrection day that we celebrate today. And now Jesus has a seat at God's place of honor in heaven. And that is at at His right hand. And the Bible teaches us that all who look to Jesus to cleanse them from their sins by believing that Jesus died to take their place and by believing that Jesus lives, that He is not dead, and that by believing that Jesus is coming back to take believers to live with Him forever, all who believe in that, the Bible says, will be saved from their sins. They will be able to stand before the Almighty God, not because of their own perfection, but because Christ stands in their place, stands in our place. So, what do we do when our sins have been exposed to us? God knows about them. The Bible tells us that we must turn from them and believe in God's mean of God's means of covering those sins, that is, atoning for them, paying for them, and that is through Jesus Christ. Well, we need to continue here in Ezra chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. Ezra mourns over the people. He, he, he's terribly saddened. The word appalled is used a few times here in verses 3 and 4. He's, he's saddened over their sin. And then in verses 6 and 7, he, he turns to God. And he stands before God and acknowledges the guilt of the people before God. He confesses sin. That's what God wants us to do when our sins have been exposed to us. He wants us to confess our sins to Him. Not to a priest, not to a pastor, not to another person, but to Him. And then in verses 8 and 9, Ezra celebrates God's faithfulness. But now, verse 8, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. So he's saying, listen, somehow God, you've been merciful to us throughout this whole thing. We have sinned against you. And you have every right to consume us with your wrath, but for some reason you've allowed us to continue. You haven't judged us according to our sin as of yet. God will one day. But as of yet, Ezra recognizes they have not been judged according to their sin. In verses 10 to 15, Ezra rehearses their sin and God's command as he prays to God. He's saying, our sin is against you, God. Our, our, our sin has separated us from you. And, and, and really, we should be separating ourselves from these pagans, these people who hate you. And yet, we've intermarried with them. And yet, look at verse 13. God has been merciful. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt of intermarrying with these pagans, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this. Friends, this is the nature of God. When people who are humble, acknowledging their sin, come before Him, He, he, uh, he forgives. Maybe you think that your sin is too great for God to forgive. Maybe you have a list of sins that is you think is too impure for God to cover with the blood of Jesus. But I can assure you on the basis of the Word of God that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. No matter how deep 
and how terrible your sins are. God gives grace to those who will humble themselves before Him. Those who humbly acknowledge their sin before Him, God will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. You realize that there are a lot of problems that we face in this world. We have physical problems. We have relational problems. We have economic problems, financial problems, political problems, and the list can go on and on. And God could have sent someone to deal with all those individual issues. All those will be dealt with one day. But do you know what kind of God we have? We have a God who sent someone to deal with our greatest problem. And that's the problem of our sin. He didn't send a doctor to fix all the illnesses. Yes, He has the power to do that. He didn't send an economist to take care of all of the economic problems in our society. He didn't send a politician. He didn't send a relational guru. He sent a Savior. Because He knew, and we now know, that our sin is our greatest problem. All those other problems could be fixed and we could still be under the wrath of God. And so God sent for us a Savior. And God is merciful to all those who come to Him in humility, who acknowledge their sin. Well, in chapter 10, Israel responds to their sin. Here, Ezra prays and and the people confess their sin. They gather together and basically say in verse 2, we have been unfaithful, but there's hope for us if we acknowledge our sin. And so they turn from their sins. And in verses 3-5, through we know that that their repentance is genuine because they're willing to accept the consequences of their sin. They're willing to do God's will, God's desire. Notice what God's desire is in verse 3. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my commandment, uh, the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So they believe, the people of Israel believe, that what God wants them to do is to divorce their wives. To divorce the wife who is not serving the living and true God. Effectively excommunicating them from the Jewish community. Now I have to admit that it's not clear why God would allow and demand Israel to do this. In this case, since God created marriage to be for one man and one woman for one lifetime. But what I do know is that God does not allow us to divorce our spouse for the same reasons in 1 Corinthians 7. In other words, if you currently are a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever, God doesn't call you to do what He called Israel to do here. Because 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that if your spouse will remain with you, even though they're unbelieving, that you should remain with them. And that will be a testimony of God's mercy to them. And we have other examples of that with Hosea uh, for example. So, so I'm not sure exactly why God would allow something like this. And um, I've given a little bit of thought to this, but, but I, I can't give you an answer this morning. I apologize for that. Well, this is what they decide that they need to, need to do. And Ezra decides to throw down the gauntlet. Verses 6-8, through eight, he says, listen, anyone who's not going to assemble, we'll just read it here, verse 8 made a proclamation, verse 7, verse 8, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So we're going to have 
a gathering, an assembly of all of Israel, all the people who've come back from Babylon. Let's all meet together. Anyone who doesn't come within three days, not only will your spouse be excommunicated or removed from our society, not able to participate in worship to God, but you as well, even if you're a Jew. While the people um, recognize what they're supposed to do, verses 9-12, through 12, they're supposed to separate from their wives who are unbelieving. Those who have married pagan wives must divorce them and send them away. Verse 12, they agree to do it. In verses 13-17, to 17, the people obey. Verse 13, but there are many people... Uh, there are many people. It is the rainy season. We are not able to to stand in the open. So, so the the method that's set out by Ezra and the leaders is to to take care of this now. Let's get rid of these pagan wives from our community. But but in order to do that, first they had to do some kind of a a court hearing. Uh, remember, this is a different society than what we have today. Okay, we, we have a separation of church and state. There they had a combination of it because they had a theocracy where God was over their their rule. And so Israel was supposed to have their appointed leaders as also their political leaders and so on. So, But what they were supposed to have to do was some kind of a court hearing where each person who had married a foreigner was to come and, and meet basically and have a hearing. And if it was determined that the spouse was unbelieving, even if they were, uh, uh, or I should say, uh, if it was determined that they had a, a foreign wife, for example, and that that foreign wife was unbelieving, that they had to remove them. They had to divorce that woman and remove her from the from society. But it, I believe that if a person uh, had a spouse who was a foreigner and she was willing to worship God exclusively, then that marriage would not be terminated. Instead, the spouse would remain in society just like Ruth just like Joseph's wife, just like Mo- Moses' wife, they would be allowed to remain. And um, so that's what they decide to do. But the problem is they're, they're doing this during the rainy season. So this assembly happens during the time when they're in a huge downpour and the people say, listen, we can't do it all in one day. Let's take some time and do it. And so they take, do it over the course of three months from December of 458 B.C. to March of 457 B.C. Over the span of three months, they are able to get all of the people who have married a pagan foreign woman and they're able to, to have hearings for each of them, probably a couple a day, and they decide um, to remove them. Verses 18 to 24 is just the list of all the people uh, according to their responsibilities. is listed first by priests. These people are foremost in their sins. How dare they? Of all people, supposed to be men of God, they even married pagan uh, women. And this act of removing these pagans from their midst would serve, I think, for them as a powerful reminder to the people of Israel of how much God demands purity. And I, I think there's something for us to learn here. Not that, again, that we should divorce an unbelieving spouse, but rather that, that we can't think that God is going to ignore sin somehow. That God's just going to, you know, sometimes we go through life and think, well, I know I have sin, but I'll just deal with it when I get to the next life. The truth of the Scriptures is that God knows about your sin now. His eyes roam back and forth throughout the whole earth. He knows everything that happens from top to bottom, from east to west, 
God knows it all. He knows all the thoughts that you've ever had in your life. We cannot hide from God. And so the best thing for us to do is not to wait till the next life and hope He doesn't, he doesn't look at our sin and deal with it like He's told us He would. The best thing to do is to come out into the light. Into the light of His truth. We need to acknowledge that our sin is real and it is an offense before God. It's better for us. It's far better for us to acknowledge our sin now, turn from it, and accept God's means of atonement. Because the only other option is to ignore our sin now and have God expose our sin in the next life. And at that point, friends, it will be too late to accept His offer of salvation from from His wrath. We will face the full measure of it. God knows about your sin. You know about your sin. So turn from it today and recognize that Jesus' payment was enough. That He died and rose from the dead to take your place under God's wrath. And the more that we come to know God, the more we recognize the ugliness of our sin. And I can tell you that there is no greater joy in this life than the joy of knowing that your sins have been atoned for. That that your sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. That's why we sing about it. It seems kind of morbid to to sing about the blood of Jesus. On Good Friday we sang a song called there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That, that's the name for Jesus. And sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all their guilty stains. We love to sing about the death of Jesus because it means so much for our life, our spiritual life in God. There's no greater joy than knowing that your sins have been atoned for. And if you want to know more about what the Bible has to say about that, I would urge you to do do business with God today. Get right with God regarding your sin today. I'd be happy to talk to you after the service or via email or phone call. Don't think, well, if I, if I miss it today, it's my last opportunity. It may be. We don't know what tomorrow brings. But, but if when God reveals to you your sin and you want to talk, I'm happy to do so. I'd also encourage you that if you're thinking about this for yourself, that, that we have a, a, um, a Bible study that starts on Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday, April 7th, at 7 o'clock, in this back room right behind us. It's, it's an informal setting. We're going to have some refreshments, and then we're just going to study through the Gospel of Mark. And our goal is to find out who Jesus is and what He came to do. Why did He come to the earth? And then what does He expect of us? Those are the three questions we want to answer. Who is Jesus? What did He come to do? And what does He expect of us? And, and it's just an informal time of Bible study and conversation. It's not classroom setting. Uh, there's no tests or quizzes. And I'd love for you to join us as we talk more specifically about who Jesus is and what He came to do and what He came to do for you and what He demands of you. And if you're interested in coming to that, it's just seven weeks. You don't have to sign up for the rest of your life or anything like that. Just seven weeks studying through the Gospel of Mark. There is a postcard on the back table, and it's got a big, huge thumbprint on the front of it. And it's called Christianity Explored. It starts this Tuesday at 7. So I'd encourage you to, 
to come this Tuesday. If you're thinking about this sin before God, God knows about it, I know about it, I need to deal with it. And that would be a good thing to, to study through with us. I'd encourage you to do that. Let's pray and we'll ask God's blessing as we're dismissed today. Lord, we're thankful for the truth of the Bible and we're thankful that we can know for sure that we have a right relationship with You. We don't have to wait to the next life and guess if we're going to be on Your side or, or if we're going to be judged for all of eternity. We can know today. And so I pray that You would give assurance to those who have chosen to follow Christ and I pray that You would... Uh, that You would convict and turn those who, who have chosen not to follow Christ up until this point. And I pray that You'd help them to know the great joy of being able to see as the kids sang. Of, of being able to see things clearly, spiritually, because we now know that we can have a right relationship with You, our Creator. Thank You so much for Jesus Christ and sending Him to this earth. We, we can't imagine that, that He being God in human flesh, would be willing to give up His life and to be treated as a commoner and a criminal so that we could have a seat at Your table, so that we could receive a throne one day, sit on a throne with You, not to become a God, but to, to share in Your glory in some way. We don't deserve it in any way. We haven't earned it. It's all of grace. And so we praise You for it and ask that You would spread out Your grace on more and more people, even people under the sound of my voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.